Um, so my oldest boy, my two boys, Connor and Cole, they both play basketball. And so we officially signed them up for basketball. Uh, they started, well, Cole started, my middle son, six years old, started his practice yesterday. And he's still in that instructional league where they're still learning like what basketball is and what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. And so to get him ready for his first practice, I spent a lot of time over the last several weeks just playing out in the driveway and helping him understand what you can do in basketball and what you can't do in basketball. One of the big ones, especially for kids to learn, is defense. Like offense is pretty simple. Dribble the ball the best you can, go put it in the hoop. Defense, though, is a little bit more difficult because there's a lot of rules around what you can and cannot do as a defender. So we practiced this last week. I'd have the ball in our driveway and say, okay, Cole, Come and get the ball. You're the defender. I'm on offense. Come and get the ball. Now, a little context. He just finished playing football, flag football, this year. We watch a lot of football in our house. So when you tell a six-year-old, come and get the ball, he came and got the ball. I mean, shoulder and everything came and got the ball. I'm like, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. You can't do that. And, and all the innocence of a six-year-old, why not? I got the ball. And I'm like, yeah, but, but you can't tackle me. It's not football. It's a different sport. There's a lot of rules. So you cannot just tackle me. Let's try it again. All right, without tackling me, Cole, come and get the ball. So he comes over. He doesn't tackle me this time, doesn't lean his shoulder in, but he does the whole piggyback ride bear hug thing. So he just jumps up on my back and is swatting at the ball like this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't do that either. You really can't touch me. Like, and I know that doesn't make sense, Cole, but you really can't touch me. So then I started teaching him the proper defensive stances, especially for a six-year-old. It's like, okay, so palms out, arms out, bend your knees, and then you do the shuffle, right? Teaching him the shuffle. I was like, do this with me, Cole. Just do the shuffle. Just do the shuffle. He's like, how does that get the ball from you? I'm like, don't worry about it. Just do the shuffle. <laughs> so we're trying again. So I've got the ball. I got the ball. And he's just doing the shuffle. I'm like, good, good, good. So then I show him, now if somebody turns around, and man, I didn't even have to say it, he swatted that ball right out from my hands. I'm like, there you go. You got the ball without getting a foul, without touching me, knocking me over, jumping on my back, or tackling me in the process. So that's how you play basketball as a defender. And I bring that up to explain in our lives, we will always be on defense on some, on some level, right? There's always opposition. We're always going to be dealing with some form of opposition. I would suggest there's three forms of opposition we face regularly. The first one is spiritually. We have a very real enemy that does not want us to have faith in Jesus. And that enemy is going to be doing everything he can in his army to keep you from God. So we do have opposition where we will be opposed by a spiritual enemy. We're also opposed, we have opposition internally, personally. I say personal opposition. This is the thoughts that you have. This is the, the emotions that, again, motions aren't right or wrong, but how we respond to them, react to them, they can totally get out of hand. So all those internal things that we find ourselves fighting against ourselves with, that's personal opposition. Then we have relational opposition. This is usually the, most, uh, the one that gets the most press in our lives. It's, it's other people and how they oppose us. Enemies that we have, people that don't like us or don't agree with us, or we don't see eye to eye, or for whatever reason there's tension, we find opposition amongst ourselves and the people around us. Spiritually, 
personally, relationally, we're going to deal with opposition. So what I want you to pay attention to today as we go through the story of Nehemiah is in that opposition, you know what's going to happen. So can we have a plan for how to respond to opposition before it happens? Let me say that again. We know opposition is going to happen spiritually, personally, relationally. If we know it's going to happen at some point, can we make a plan now to how we're going to respond in that opposition before we're right there in the midst of it? Because let's be honest, me included, when we're in the middle of opposition, we do not respond well. In the midst of opposition, our emotions do get the better of us. We say things, do things we wish we could take back and do differently. So my hope today is that Nehemiah chapters 4, 5, and 6, yes, we're doing three chapters today, so buckle up. You're going to have to listen fast. In those three chapters, you're going to see a playbook of opposition and how we respond well. What's the opposition? And then how do we respond well? As we go through these three chapters, there's going to be six types of opposition. I do not expect you at Absolutely. I do not expect you to remember all six of these different oppositions that Nehemiah faces that we face as well. But here's what I am asking you, and I would hope, is that you would listen for that one that says, ooh, that's me right now. Like whether it's spiritually, whether it's personally, whether it's relationally, like I'm dealing with that kind of opposition in my life today. I know when I go to work tomorrow, that's what I'm going to be facing. I know in my family, like that's what we're wrestling through. And me personally, like that's what I'm walking through. So out of the six, there's going to be one that I think God's going to knock on your heart and say, hey, hey, wake up, that one's yours. Write that one down because you're going to see the opposition, but also how to respond to it and hold on to that one rather than trying to memorize and hang on to all six. Make sense? Is that good? All right. So here's what we see. If you've got your Bible, be in Nehemiah chapter 4. Let me give you, as you're finding Nehemiah Old Testament, let me give you a little recap here. Nehemiah chapter 1 was Nehemiah learning of his hometown, Jerusalem, and the walls being broken down. So his heart broke for his people. It broke for his community. And he wanted to do something about it. So he comes before God and he prays. He prays, God, this isn't right. God, help me to be able to be part of the solution. It was really powerful prayer where we see Nehemiah's heart break for something that was broken. And that's a theme in Nehemiah, where God wants to restore the broken things in our lives. Chapter 2. Nehemiah goes before the king of Persia and explains why his heart is so broken. And he prays for an opportunity, prays that God would use that conversation to allow him to be able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we see an incredible opportunity show up, and we see that Nehemiah acts on that opportunity. In fact, the king of Persia doesn't just give Nehemiah the thumbs up, go ahead and rebuild the wall. He actually funds it, gives him supplies, gives him money, gives him people, and says, go and do what you need to do. Chapter 3, what we looked at last week, was Nehemiah gathering all of the people together and said, it's not just me that's rebuilding this wall. We're all going to rebuild this wall, all in to get it all done. So everybody took a different part of the wall and worked hard and worked together to be able to accomplish something great, to restore something that was broken. Now, those first three chapters are awesome. I mean, it's exciting. It's encouraging. There's great opportunities in there. But for Nehemiah, and I think this would be true for us as well, Great opportunity also brings great opposition. This is what we're talking about, what we've been talking about. Great opposition. So much opposition, in fact, that where we had three chapters leading up to it, the next three chapters are nothing but opposition. (laughs) This is what we're going to see today. 
So pay attention to maybe the spiritual opposition, personal or relational. And what is that one that you feel like, man, that's where I'm at. And what can we learn from the story of Nehemiah? So here's the first part. Nehemiah chapter 4, follow along. You've got a Bible. If not, make sure you grab one from the cafe over where you get your coffee. Hang on to it. That's yours to keep so you can bring next week. Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is as they're rebuilding the wall. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. Now, this is a leader of another nation outside of Jerusalem, so not part of Nehemiah's crew, but a, a close-by neighbor that wasn't happy that this wall was being built. It says, when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall, he was very angry. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build this wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? What you're hearing is insults in the ancient world. I know, sounds super mean, doesn't it? Look at this next one, though. Verse 3, this other guy tags in. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, Yeah, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked on top of it. That's just hilarious. See, it doesn't matter how old you get or how old in history you go. We still do the same things. We're all middle schoolers at heart in how we talk to one another. So here's your first opposition. Opposition number one, criticism. Criticism. There's a bunch of people that don't like what Nehemiah is doing. Been there before? There's people that don't like what you are doing. You deal with criticism. Criticism from words, mostly like there's nothing physical. They're not attacking. They're not doing anything other than physically saying, we don't like what you're doing and you're doing a bad job. And in our world, especially in our world today, where our lives are on a much larger display and platform, which allows for a lot more people to give us their opinions we shouldn't care about. And that criticism becomes a major form of opposition. But for every opposition, we're going to see Nehemiah respond and respond the right way. So notice Nehemiah's response to his critics. He says this in verse 4, Then I prayed, and here's his prayer, Hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. Now, I don't know if you caught this or not, but do you recognize that this is the first account that we have of somebody saying, I am rubber and you are glue. Whatever you say to me bounces off of me and sticks to you. Do you catch that? That's what he said. We're being mocked. And he says this to God. God, they're mocking us. So may their scoffing fall back on their own heads. May they become captives. What they're saying to us, may it go back to them. Very first time that happens. But notice what he does and doesn't do here. This is the response to his criticisms, to his critics. He responded with prayer and silence. And I would say the same to you. Respond when you're dealing with criticism. Respond with prayer and silence. He took his feelings. He took his hurts. He took the pain. He took the anger and presented it to God through prayer. God, you hear what they're doing. You hear what they're saying about us. They're mocking us. Listen to what they're saying. And he left it with God. Often we reverse this. We want to take how we're feeling and what we think and tell everybody that will listen and, any, and anyone that really doesn't even care. Tell everybody what we think, but don't take it to God. 
We see Nehemiah do the exact opposite. He takes it all to God, but does not respond to his critics. He doesn't even talk to the other builders. Man, if we could learn something here, this might, I mean, this applies to all of us because we all have critics. We all deal with criticism. Bring it to God through prayer, but then remain silent to everyone else. Nowhere in here does Nehemiah feel the need to respond back to those critics. He leaves it with God and continues to do his work. So there's your first opposition of criticism. Here's the second one, verse six. Verse six, at last the wall was completed to half its height. Remember, this is going 40 feet up, so they're getting there, still a long way to go. The wall is completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with, and say this word with me, with enthusiasm. Yes, they've got a goal. They're moving. They're excited. They're halfway there. There's a lot of reasons to celebrate. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of enthusiasm. But as opposition does, it comes in and begins to pull that away. Verse 7, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites, Ashadites, and all the other ites heard of the work that was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. Verse 8. Now this escalates beyond just criticism. Verse 8. So they made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Notice that because of the Israelites, their, their enthusiasm, one of the quickest ways to remove enthusiasm is to add confusion. Opposition number two, confusion. Confusion is basically the unknown, and we deal with that often, especially right now. Well, what's going to happen, and what if, and I don't know about, it's the uncertain, it's the unknown, it's confusion. And confusion is very, very dangerous, because if you, allowed confusion, if you allow confusion to take root, doesn't mean you have to have all the answers, but if you allow your emotions to run away with confusion, eventually it leads to disconnection, which then leads to division. So for the enemy, the opposition, what's the best way to get this group of people to stop working together? Insert a little confusion. Insert a little unknowns and some uncertainties. And watch them begin to fight amongst themselves and to divide amongst themselves. And guess what? They're no longer building a wall together. Confusion. Opposition number two. Once again, let's see the response of Nehemiah. Even with all the confusion, verse 9, but we prayed to our God, common theme, but we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. So he does what he did at first with the criticism. He prayed, he brought it to God, but there is another part to it. We bring things to God, but there are times where then we have a responsibility as well. So here's what I see in Nehemiah and here's what I think we should, how we should follow suit. In the midst of confusion and the unknowns, yes, we respond with prayer, but we also don't panic. Confusion by nature is intended to make people panic. In the midst of unknowns and uncertainties, to freak out and everybody start doing something different, thus leading to disconnection and then division. That's how confusion works. But Nehemiah doesn't allow that to take place. He prays to God, God, we need your help here. There's things that we don't understand. There's things that are beyond our control. So God, we have to leave that with you but we're not going to panic. We're going to stay calm. We're going to stay alert. We're going to place guards so that we can see. We'll do what we can do, but we also recognize there's things outside of our control. So when you face the uncertain, the unknowns, the confusion, respond with prayer and don't panic. Stay calm. 
and continue to make wise decisions as they are appropriate. Here's the third one. The next opposition happens in verse 10. Notice how this begins to escalate. Then the people of Judah began to complain. Here it is. We were waiting for this to happen. It's a lot of work. That's what they complain about. They say, the workers are getting tired, and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Man, where did that enthusiasm go? Where did that, we got this, we're all in this together. You work on this gate, you work on that gate. But all of a sudden, it's too much, and there's no way, they think, we'll ever be able to do this by ourselves. But then we see that adds on, verse 11. Meanwhile, while the Israelites are complaining, meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. That escalated quickly. Verse 12 went from like making fun of my wall and that a fox would knock it over to we'll swoop down and kill you when you don't see it coming. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So let me give you this picture and even give you some geography here. So you've heard several names, Sanballat, uh, we've heard Tobiah, we've heard the Ammonites, the, all the other ites, right? So you have the Jerusalem in the middle. And geographically speaking, they all truly surrounded Jerusalem. Each of those other groups of people and those leaders lived geographically around Jerusalem. So it's not a metaphor to say they are surrounding us and they're going to attack us on all sides. Like, no, their enemies literally, geographically surrounded them. So notice a couple of things that are happening here. You have the complaining that's happening with inside the people of, of the, the city. So you have the Israelites complaining. But then you also have the opposition coming on the outside. And this, like we said, escalated. No longer is it just criticizing. It's no longer just making a plan to cause confusion. Now it's, no, we're going to come and actually do harm. So what is this opposition? Because it's building up. Opposition number three is discouragement. Discouragement. Discouragement from within the ranks of the Israelites. We can't do this anymore. It's too much work. We'll never get it done. Discouragement from the Israelites to say, no, we've seen the enemy. They're, gonna, they're surrounding us. They're everywhere. They will attack us. So you have it from the inside and you have it on the outside. And there's discouragement. Once again, when we face discouragement, when we face an opposition, let's look for the correct response. Because so often in discouragement, and we've all been there. Maybe you are there. When you get stuck in discouragement, it's hard to move past it. It's real hard to move past it. That motivation of enthusiasm you used to have once lost, it's hard to get that back again. Well, what's the point and why bother? Why are we even doing this? So notice what Nehemiah does when his people are facing discouragement. Verse 13, so, here's his response. So, I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then, he's not done. Discouragement is a big problem, so there's a lot of work to be done. Verse 14, then, as I looked over the situation, I called the people together, the nobles and the rest of the people, and said to them, he gets them in a huddle. He says, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is, your, who is great and glorious, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So there's his response. He does two things. Let's talk through it. In the midst of discouragement, Respond with perspective and a plan. Perspective and a plan. Let's talk about perspective first. 
He gets everybody together. They're all discouraged. This is never going to work. They're going to kill us. Like it's all exaggerated. And so he gets them all together and says, guys, 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 perspective. Don't be afraid. Now we've said this before. Just saying don't be afraid is never helpful. You have to tell me why I shouldn't be afraid, which is what Nehemiah does. Don't be afraid of your enemies. Why? Do you remember? He tells them to remember what? That's right. Remember the Lord. Remember that he's great and he's glorious. Remember all that he's done to get us to this point. Remember the stories of how God gave us opportunity and how God has supplied for us and how God has protected us and God has got us to this point and God's got us. Remember that. It's perspective shift, a perspective change. So in the midst of discouragement, he pulls his people together and says, remember who God is. Remember who you are to God, a child of God, and he loves you and he will not leave you and all the promises that we hold tightly to perspective. But then he also has a plan. It's not just a pep talk. Like Nehemiah puts some things into action specifically and more intentionally than what he's done before. Prior to, he just placed some guards around the wall. But this is getting serious. So he gets much more intentional. He tells us, I placed armed guard behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. Do you know what that means? The vulnerable spots along the wall. It wasn't just, yeah, 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 we put some guards out. It was, we've got a crack in the wall here. We've got a big hole in the wall here. This wall's not completed yet. And he puts the armed guards in the weakest, most vulnerable spots along the wall. When we are facing discouragement, may I say the same to you? Know your weak spots. Because when you are discouraged, oh, those weak spots get tested, don't they? When are you most tempted? When you're discouraged. When do your emotions get the best of you? When you're discouraged. When do you say the things you shouldn't say? When you're discouraged. When do you blow up at your kids? When you're discouraged. So Nehemiah finds the vulnerable spots of the wall and intentionally places extra people along those spots. So for us, I would say know your weak spots. Have a plan. We all know we're going to face discouragement. We all know we're going to have stress. We all know we're going to feel overwhelmed at times. So do you know how to protect yourself when those things happen? How do you make sure that when work gets crazy, you don't carry that home to your family? How do you make sure when finances get tight, you don't stop trusting in God? Know your weak spots. Because when discouragement comes, those are the parts of your wall that are going to get tested first. So Nehemiah gives his people perspective, remember God, and let's fortify those weak spots because we know if we're attacked, that's where it's going to happen first. All right, you guys are doing great. We only have two more chapters to go. You ready? Now we're going to skip ahead, get to chapter six. You can read chapter five on your own. I don't have enough time to do chapter five for you, but we're going to go to chapter six. Chapter six, verse one. Here's the fourth opposition that we see Nehemiah and his men face. We're introduced to the enemy once again. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained. So we're making progress, although we had not yet set up the doors and the gates. So the wall is pretty much finished, but we still have all of these openings where the gates and the doors are going to go. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. You caught that. Good. So let me just say this, right? 
Uh, Nehemiah is a very wise, godly man. But for us and for him, there's just a good rule of thumb. If somebody wants you, an enemy, in fact, wants to meet you in a neutral location called Oh No, don't go. (laughs) You should never go. If it doesn't sound right, like that's where you talk about those gut feelings a little bit, the intuition, the Holy Spirit, like, oh, I just don't know if that's a situation I should put myself in. You think I won't go to Oh No. Like that should be your little mantra. Don't go to, that's right, because it's not going to end well. Because if he had shown up, he would have almost certainly said, oh no, this is not good. So there's a little foreboding there. But of course, in all the wisdom of Nehemiah, he realizes the rest part, the rest of verse two, but I realized that they were plotting to harm me. Figured the name gave that one away, but good to know just in case. Verse three, so I replied by sending this message to them. I love this. I am engaged in a great work so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Notice the enemies have changed their tactics. They started out with criticism, and then they were like going to attack and cause confusion, and then they were going to actually attack and cause harm. Now it's, hey, hey, we were just kidding about all that like mean stuff we said. We weren't really going to plan to attack you. No, let's hang out at Ono for a little bit. (laughs) Just get to know each other. I think we got off on the wrong foot. Notice their tactic is no longer attacking, but it's drawing Nehemiah out. If they can't attack and cause problems from the outside in, they're going to remove Nehemiah from what he's doing. Here's your next opposition. Opposition number four, distraction. Distraction. There's something broken in your life and in the people around you. We just live in brokenness. That's a sinful world. So we all have brokenness in our lives. We all have brokenness around us. And as God desires to restore what's broken, the enemy wants to distract you to stop you from rebuilding. You might have a great, great motivation and great enthusiasm and great intentions of rebuilding your family and rebuilding your character and rebuilding the things that were broken. So the enemy... Is just going to get you distracted, so you put your hammer down for a little bit. Let me get you to focus on something else instead of rebuilding what God is desiring you to rebuild and restore in your life. Distraction. Come here, Nehemiah. Just take a break. Come and meet with us just for a little bit. Then you can go back to finish your work. And Nehemiah's response is brilliant on so many different levels. I can't come. I'm doing something more important. Why should I come and meet with you? I'm not going to leave the wall. This is what's most important now. So how do we rephrase that? I would say this. Respond by prioritizing. We know that. We all are going to be distracted by things. There are so many things. I mean, I could preach on this a whole other sermon. Things, people, stuff that, that steal our attention, that are trying to steal our attention away. And so every single day we are offered a choice, a trade, because everything's a trade. You are one person that has only so much time and so much energy and so many resources. So anytime somebody's asking something of you or from you, in order to say yes to that, you have to say no to something else. So for Nehemiah, if he says, yes, I'll come meet with you, he has to say no to building the wall, at least in that moment. I have to stop building so I can go and meet with you. And those are the decisions and the choices and the trades that we're faced with every single day. In order to say yes to this meeting, I have to stop working on this. By the way, I'm not suggesting you take this as an application to your work tomorrow. Your boss says, hey, I need to have a meeting. Nope, I cannot come meet with you. I am doing a great work. My pastor told me so. Like, don't get me in trouble for that one, right? But there's some truth to that. 
For every meeting you have, you have to stop something else. Your kids are wanting this from you, which means you have to say no to someone or something else. Your life is full of yeses and nos, and they will be a trade. So my question to you would be, is it a good trade right now? Are you saying yes to the right things and no to the right things? Or do you need to say no to some things so you can say yes to more of the important things? That's between you and the Lord. But everything's a trade. Nehemiah recognizes it, realizes it, and says, no, this is not a trade I'm going to make. My answer is yes to rebuilding the wall, so therefore my answer must be no to you. Get used to saying no so you can say yes to the most important things. Well, they didn't like that, as you can imagine. Next opposition, verse 4. Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave them the same reply. The fifth time, Sanballat's servant came with an open letter in his hand, and this is what it said. Another change of tactic. Now, as I read this, do your very best. I mentioned this earlier. I want you to read this or listen to this uh, through the lens of a middle schooler writing it, because that's exactly how it sounds. Picture a middle schooler writing it. Here it is. There's a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel and is why you're building the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you, look, there's the king of Judah. You can be sure that this report will certainly get back to the king. So I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. Man, that's sneaky. <laughs> he couldn't get him to just go to, oh no, because. So now he says, well, I've heard a rumor. I've heard that you're actually doing this to rebel. And Geshem, by the way, says it's true. So it has to be true. And in fact, I'm going to tell the king of Persia all about these rumors. So if you don't want me to do that, you better come and meet with me. Sneaky. But our enemies are, aren't they? The opposition, when it doesn't get through, I promise you it will keep finding another way at you. Opposition number five, deception. Just a straight up lie. None of this is true. But he's trying to get Nehemiah to take the bait. Because what happens when we give in to these lies? Well, Nehemiah, surely drop what you're doing and go and set this man straight. Nehemiah, drop what you're doing so that this doesn't get out of hand. Nehemiah, stop what you're doing and go deal with the lie. But notice what Nehemiah does. Again, with all the wisdom in the world. Verse 8, I replied. Notice how short all of his replies are to his opposition. Something to be learned there. I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You are making the whole thing up, period. <laughs> Man, I love that. Notice how, how long the letter was earlier. I heard a rumor in this and that and you and I'm going to do like, it's a long letter. And Nehemiah just, I could picture him like working on the wall. Um, it's not true. You made the whole thing up. Tell him that. And goes right back to working. He's like, I don't even have time. He does not dissect this lie. He does not give credit to any part of it. He doesn't go on the defense. He doesn't debate it. He doesn't respond with other than, well, it's not true, and you made the whole thing up. Now he goes on. He gives us a little insight personally. Verse 9, they were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. They're not going to stop us. Here's what I would say to you. When you're dealing with deception, when you're dealing with lies, again, lies from the spiritual enemy that we face, 
lies from what you tell yourself that's not true or lies from what other people say about you or to you, let me say this. Respond with truth and focus. Truth and focus. It's either true or it's not true. And if it's not true, do we really need to spend all of our time stopping what we were doing that was most important to just pick apart the lie? Keep in mind, Nehemiah has grown in his integrity and character over the years. So when Nehemiah says, it's not true, you made the whole thing up, I feel like most people would believe that. If word got back to the king about this rumor, I feel like, don't know this, I'm making an assumption, but because of his integrity already, the king's going to say, that's probably just a rumor, I'm not too worried about it. We sometimes get too worked up over the lie. So stay focused. Do what you're called to do. Do what you need to do. The right thing. Don't get distracted, like we just talked about. But hold close to the truth. That's why every single Sunday, man, this is why we do what we do. We read from the truth so we know the truth, so we can live by the truth, so we can hold to the truth and not be deceived when we walk outside of these walls. Man, we deal with deception and lies all throughout our weeks. And if we're not careful, we start buying into those lies. We get deceived. So know the truth of God so you can hold to it. And you don't have to spend your time trying to figure it out. Hold to the truth. Last one, very last one. You guys have listened quickly. Great job. Verse 10. Later, I went to visit Shemaiah, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. Now, this man that Nehemiah is visiting is not an enemy outside the walls. This is somebody that is, is a brother to him, right? They are both Jews. And so for this man to say this, hey, they're coming to get you. He must have gotten some information that nobody else had. And his suggestion is plausible. Nehemiah, you're our leader. We need to get you in the temple of God, the most fortified place, bolt the doors, lock everything down to keep you protected. Like we could say, man, that was, that's actually, a, man, what a good friend. Thank you. Out of all of these enemies, one guy is trying to care about Nehemiah. However, there's something else at play here. Verse 11, but I replied, Nehemiah said, should, that's an important word, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. Here's why, verse 12. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. They don't quit. They couldn't get him from the outside. They couldn't get him to, oh no, they couldn't do anything about a lie. So then they hired somebody within his ranks to say something and try to tempt Nehemiah. Verse 13, they were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. Opposition number six, last one, temptation. Temptation. This is that, Nehemiah, just do something. This is a shortcut. Hey, compromise just a little bit. Give you a little context. We won't go into it at extent at all. But the temple of God was the holiest of holy place. And nobody except a priest could walk in there and only at certain times with certain rituals and all these things. So for Nehemiah to walk into the temple of God would have been a sin against God, which then he would have lost his leadership over his people, which would have then caused confusion, discouragement, distraction, all the other things we've talked about to take hold over the Israelites and they would have been defeated. See, now the opposition is going against his character. Do what's wrong. But man, it's not just the do something super sinful. Oh, it's just a little sin, but it's to save your life. 
It's just a little shortcut. It's not that big of a deal. It's not going to hurt anybody else. No one else is going to know. This is actually for a good reason. Like, this will work out okay. God will give you forgiveness later on. It's those types of whispers. It's that kind of opposition of temptation. But again, Nehemiah, with all the wisdom, responds with wisdom. Notice the word should there. He used it twice. This was not a could I. Could I make a case if my life was really in danger? Could I hide out in the temple of God? I mean, you could rationalize that. You could go before God. God, there was no other option. Could he have done this? Maybe. But should he? And his answer was no. Should I be the one running away? No. Should I walk into the temple of God knowing my position and my place? His answer is no. See, often we we quickly just look for the right thing. And I would say it's, it's not just the right thing. It's also the wise thing. It's those gray areas. It's not just right and wrong. It's, is this what God would want? Is this the wise decision? And sometimes, I'd say a lot of times in life, it's not so easy. It's not just right and wrong. It's also what's the wise thing to do. Six different oppositions, a lot of opposition that Nehemiah and his people face. But every single time, Nehemiah chooses the right and wise response. We said earlier that the opportunity to rebuild the wall, great opportunity, but it also brought great opposition. Anytime God wants you to rebuild something that was broken, there's going to be opposition. But I would say the reverse of that is also true. In the midst of great opposition, there's also great opportunity. And here's why I say that. Lastly, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So on October 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after we begun. We're going to talk about that next week. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. But look at this. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Nehemiah didn't get the credit for finishing this wall in 52 days. God got the credit for working through Nehemiah and his people and finishing the wall in 52 days. The opposition that you face, the opposition that you are walking through currently is a great opportunity to point people to Jesus. Great opposition brings great opportunity to introduce people to Jesus as Lord and Savior. When you're facing criticism and you pray and remain silent, great opportunity to talk about Jesus. And on his way to the cross, he remains silent. When you're faced with confusion and the unknowns and you respond with prayer and a plan and you're calm and you're not panicky and everybody else is panicky, like, what's right? Why, why, why don't you act like this? Because I trust my God's bigger than any problems I face. I may not know, but I know my God knows. We get discouraged. We face the opposition of discouragement. And people are like, how can you have joy in this? How can you walk through this? How do you deal with the hurts and the pains and the struggles? You say, James chapter 1. I consider things pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when we face trials of many kind, because I know that those trials will produce something in me that God is growing and God is developing. What about with all the the distractions in life and making choices? How do you make those choices? How do you say no so well? Jesus modeled that perfectly. Jesus would walk away from crowds to go and spend time with God. Jesus commended a woman for "Stop, stop the busyness and just sit at my feet. I recognize the importance of priorities in my life and I I trust him to lead me along the way of wise decisions and my priorities. How can you not say, say anything back when somebody lies to you and is full of deceit and deceiving? I would tell you, trust God. 
He knows the truth. The truth is what sets us free. So I trust him with all things. Well, how do you fight against those temptations that are just constant and relentless? I would say, man, we don't do those well. We don't do those well. In fact, I don't know about you, but for me, I probably relate less to Nehemiah in this section of the story and more to the, the common Israelite that was freaked out, that was discouraged, that was deceived, that was flustered. And I need a Nehemiah in my life that comes in and says, no, 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 let's respond the right way. Because I don't always make the right choices like Nehemiah, which is why we have Jesus in our life as Lord and Savior. All the mistakes that we've made, all the sins that we've committed, all the failures we've had along the way, every time we deal with opposition and we handle it in the worst way possible, we have Jesus, like a Nehemiah, but so much more, to come in for us, on behalf of us, and say, first of all, I'm not holding your failures against you, and I'll lead you in the way, in Jesus' words, of everlasting life. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. This is the greatest news you'll ever hear. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, and no matter what we've done, no matter our failures or our mistakes. For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. So I hope that we respond better in the future. But thank God for his grace through Jesus Christ, who takes our sins away, takes our failures away, and continues to lead us as Lord and Savior. When you walked in today, you got a cup for communion that allows us to do what even Nehemiah suggested, remember the Lord, focus on him, if you didn't get communion, if you'll just like raise your hand, no worries, our guest service team, they'll be walking around. They'll make sure you get it. Just be patient with them as they walk around. They got you. Communion is an opportunity for us to remember Jesus and his sacrifice, his grace and our faith, his sacrifice that gives us life. The bread represents Jesus's body that was broken on the cross that takes our sins away. The juice represents Jesus's blood that was poured out and shed for us for the removal of our sins not by anything that we have done, but because of what he has already done on the cross. His sacrifice, his death brings us life. His resurrection as he conquered both the grave and sin gives us the gift, the hope, and the promise of eternal life. Let's pray and we'll take communion together. Father God, thank you so much for taking care of what we could never take care of on our own. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to be Lord and Savior. Lord, meaning we follow him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind, that he teaches us how to walk and how to live. Savior, meaning we could not get rid of these sins and mistakes, failures on our own. We need Jesus. We are desperate for Jesus. So Jesus, thank you for your death on the cross. That's the only reason we can stand right before our God, not because of our work and our effort, but because of what you have already done on our behalf. Holy Spirit, in this time, would you consume our thoughts with you? Consume our heart with the things of you 
as we remember and thank you for what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.